Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 3rd, 2022. I hope you're all well. I hope none of you are in jail at the moment, and I hope your mental health is good. Those are two themes, and of course, not only your mental health, but your love life. Those are three themes that we've really covered extensively on this show. Um, last week, uh, we had the excellent writer Christine Montross on the show, talking about how essentially prisons have become uh, mental health asylums in some way. Her book, um, Waiting for an Echo, The Madness of American Incarceration is extremely moving and troubling. I would strongly uh, suggest people read that. And the conversation with her was also, I thought, rather moving and troubling. Uh, I also, uh, last month, had the sociologist Michael L. Walker on the show. He spent a little bit of time in jail as a young man. And he writes about that in Indefinite, Doing Time in Jail. Again, touching on the the elimination of time in jail and the impact that had on his mental health. It was a, another very creepy, troubling book. Cheering ourselves up, though, uh, last month, uh, just after um, Valentine's Day, I did a, an interview with the cultural commentator uh, Laura Kipnis on how uh, our experience of the pandemic has reshaped our concepts of dating, sex, and above all else, love. Uh, she has a wonderful new book out, Love in the Time of Contagion, a Diagnosis. Uh, what we're doing today is bringing those worlds together, oddly enough, the world of prison and love in the book that we're talking about today, Love Lockdown, Dating, Sex, and Marriage in America's Prisons. It's by Elizabeth uh, Greenwood, a very talented writer who lives and operates out of uh, Brooklyn, New York, and he, she's joining us today. Liz, um, this combination of prison and love, how'd you come up with that idea? It's pretty crazy, isn't it? It is pretty crazy. It came to me pretty organically. So in my first book, Playing Dead, A Journey Through the World of Death Fraud, I ended up interviewing um, a man named Sam Israel III, who was a hedge fund manager here in New York and in 2008 staged his suicide from by parking his car at the Bear Mountain Bridge with a kind of suicide note um, scrawled in the dust on his windshield and made it seem as if he had plunged. He had recently absconded with half a billion dollars of investors' money and the feds were after him. So he staged his death. He ended up turning himself in six weeks later. He kind of hid out in campsites in an RV for a while, but, um, around 2008, he was a big story in the news um, here in New York. So I knew I had to talk to him and I did. And I interviewed him very extensively um, for Playing Dead. We continued to correspond after those interviews had concluded. And he would mention to me that every time his story is on these kind of tawdry cable news shows like American Greed and things like that. He'll get a batch of letters from people, usually women, who are interested in him. And I thought that was so interesting. You know, we've heard about this phenomenon before of, uh, you know, serial killers, and etc., who have um, 
fans and groupies and all that. So I knew that that was kind of the most extreme supermarket tabloid iteration of this phenomenon. But what struck me is that Sam, you know, he, he's a little famous. He's not, he's not a household name. Um, and he's doing time in federal prison for 20 years. So why would people be interested in this kind of person romantically. But I had a hunch that similar to my first book about people who fake their deaths, that these phenomena that really sound like the kind of um, fringe most experiences um, you know, of human life actually are not and usually are reflections of some of our own delusions and magical thinking. So I knew there had to be more to this um, you know, pursuing of an incarcerated person romantically than what met the eye. Uh, Liz, you um, you did a questionnaire with Lit Hub. Uh, <laughs> Keen on is, of course, a Lit Hub show. Yeah. One of the questions they asked you is, if you could choose a career besides writing, uh, what would it be? And and you noted that you'd love to be a a spy, an international yeah. woman of mystery, but. Um, you said you're as subtle as a T-Rex and you would give up state secrets if you were tickled. You had to be a little subtle, though, in this. I mean, this is a book of interviews with people either who have fallen in love with people in jail or people actually in jail. So in a sense, you were a little bit of a spy in this book, weren't you? Oh, never a spy in the sense that I would try to, um, you know, be deceptive about my identity or my intentions. Um, as always, very upfront with people that I was going to be. They, uh, sorry to jump in. Did they think it was a bit weird when you came to them and said, "I mean, here, here we have some photos of some of the people you you interviewed: Sheila Rule, Joe Robinson." Uh, mm -hmm. Joe was in prison. Sheila met him while she was in prison. Another Joe and Benny Reed. Did they think it was a bit weird what you were doing or did it make sense immediately to them? You know, I found that people I've interviewed and, you know, not just in this book, but in, in various books I've done and all different kinds of interviews, most people are usually waiting around like, well, why haven't I heard from you sooner? I have a great story to tell. So people, to my surprise and great delight, are usually um, quite forthcoming, sometimes more than they should probably be. <laughs> but uh, they do no, there's a, a confessional great. element to it as well. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Did you have people who refused to talk to you? People who said, no, no way I'm talking to you about this. Not really. I had people kind of fall off the radar here and there. Um, I did speak to some corrections officers who, you know, for pretty obvious reasons, wanted their identities obscured. I usually use those more on background, um, but most people were very forthcoming and, you know, excited to talk. I think it's very rare that someone shows up out of the blue and wants to just story and, you know, ask you a lot of questions, sometimes very nosy questions, but most people are very open. Liz, one of the reviews for your book, and the book has been very well reviewed, suggested that you add what they called complexity to the debates about mass incarceration. What do you think the book does in terms of bringing this new complexity, a depth, a moral ambiguity, perhaps, to the debates around incarceration in America? 
I think a lot of the debates around incarceration in America rightfully focus on the people who are incarcerated themselves and the inhumane conditions and sentences that they <clears throat> tend with. Uh, what my book does is it sheds a light on the lives of some of the people on the outside who are serving time alongside their incarcerated partner. You know, we have 2.3 million people incarcerated in this country, and there are millions more, um, often women, because the vast majority of the incarcerated population in America is male. Um, and they make huge sacrifices financially, um, logistically, just in terms to try to support um, their loved one and make their lives a little bit easier. They endure um, a lot of um, harsh treatment themselves going into facilities, um, being associated with someone who's in prison. Um, when you walk into a prison itself, you are treated like you too are a criminal in a lot of cases. Um, so these are people who are enduring trauma and, you know, going broke in a lot of cases just to provide the kind of bare necessities that someone in prison needs in terms of communication and commissary items. So I hope that showing the ways, the very insidious ways incarceration affects people who are not themselves incarcerated adds a layer of complexity to that conversation. I assume, Liz, that you hadn't had much to do with prisons before uh, writing this book. Is that fair? Love lockdown? Not a lot. Um, I interviewed a few people um, who were in prison for playing dead, and I have a few close friends who have been in prison themselves. So what did the writing of this book, how did it change your attitude? Um, I have to say for myself, given the rate of incarceration in America, the racial biases, the number of African-Americans in prison, it seems to be perhaps the most troubling aspect of all about America. And there are many troubling aspects. Um, Indeed. Were you incre increasingly disgusted by the criminal injustice, by, by, by the incarceration system uh, after writing this book? Or did, did you begin to understand its value? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Certainly not the latter. Um, but, you know, what really um, amazed me again and again was getting to know just the different ways in which that cruelty of the American incarceration system um, manifests. So for example, I came to learn about a piece of legislation called PREA, which stands for the Prison Rape Elimination Act, which on its face sounds great because prison rape is a bad thing, of course. Um, what that piece of legislation states is that there's no such thing as um, a consensual sex act in a prison between um, people who are incarcerated themselves, between staff and inmates, on and on. How this ends up being deployed usually is, um, in many cases, used punitively against queer um, prisoners who have relationships among themselves. So those relationships are then further criminalized. So it was things like that that really opened my eyes to just the tentacles uh, and creativity, really, of um, cruelty. But another thing that really impressed me as well is that even within you know, the most nightmarish conditions, in many cases, 
people still find the most ingenious and innovative ways to make love work. And so love wins out, in other words. So it's it sort of, in a sense, it your your research and the work and the book itself reminds us of the 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 indestructible nature of humanity and 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 love itself in particular the subtitle of your book is dating sex and marriage in american prisons uh the walker book that we talked about at the beginning discusses the destruction of time itself are you mm-hmm. suggesting that love and sex and particularly love um is indestructible whether or not you're in jail I mean, I think that really depends. I think that um, putting someone behind bars, that really adds a big challenge <laughs> to to love's indestructibility. Um, and, you know, of course, it comes down to the people themselves and what they're contending with in both places. But I did see a great number of examples of that love, you know, not only being indestructible, but becoming its own special, unique bonds, you know, that neither party, when they would describe it to me, had ever experienced before. Yeah. And one of the stories, one of the best stories for me in the book is this relationship between Sheila Rawl and Joe Robinson. Sheila had been a a journalist for the New York Times, and she volunteered in prison. There she met Joe Robinson, and they ended up getting married. It's a remarkable story, isn't it? Oh, it's an incredible story. I was so excited to find Sheila and Joe because, you know, the number one question people always have for me is, well, can these relationships last once the person is released and these couples are living the kind of daily grind um, of life together? And when I met Sheila and Joe, Joe um, was serving the last few months of his probation And they had been married for 12 years at that point, I think, with 10 of those years being while Joe was in prison. Um, And in the past two years, you know, he was released. They had to learn what it was like to live a married life together while Joe was adjusting to being in the free world. Um, And they were contending with all those challenges as well. Um, So, yeah, they're a terrific story. In the LitHub uh, Q&A, um, they asked which uh, words you despise in terms of being described. You said you don't like being called quirky. Would you call the book quirky or is that an insult, Liz? <laughs> I would not call the book quirky. Quirky to me kind of suggests like a niche sort of um, manic pixie dream girl sort of thing. And, you know, the topics I write about definitely on their face are odd, like fake death and prison love and these sorts of things. But they're also about kind of the most universal um stuff of life, you know, mortality, life and death, love, and it's in, you know, human resilience. So yeah, I reject quirky on its merits. Well, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt there. You're not a quirky writer, but you also (laughs) say that the thing you're most proud of in the book is that you're good at tone. What kind of tone were you aiming for in the book? Which is, after all, it's a serious book. It's about uh relationships sexual relationships between people in jail and out of jail and involves a great deal of human suffering what was the tone or what is the intended tone of the book so the tone i was hoping to strike i wanted to be really reflective of um 
the people and interactions and relationships I was observing, which is to say, yes, a great deal of suffering um, when you're, you know, enmeshed in the carceral system in this country. But on the other side of that, I saw um, people who also have to survive that. And a lot of people I met survived that through having, you know, the most hilarious, dark senses of humor at times, you know, people who forged real friendships among um, other people in their similar situation of loving someone in prison. So, you know, there were times when I was reporting and doing interviews where we would be crying and I would be crying alongside these people because they'd tell me something so horrific. And then literally in the next breath, we would be laughing, <laughs> you know? So I, there were definitely moments of humor. Definitely it's a kind of macabre humor for sure. Um, but it's also true that what I saw wasn't, just pure suffering. I saw people again describing, you know, the most fulfilling relationships of their lives. So I really wanted to just be honest in my tone about that, you know, just a spectrum of emotions that I witnessed. Um, one of the things that was going on in, in, in the Lit Hub questionnaire, they asked what was going on in your <laughs> life. You were becoming a mother, two pregnancies, drama at home, of course, huge amount of work. <laughs> How hard was it to balance these two worlds of, of motherhood and the middle class in Brooklyn with mm -hmm. doing a huge amount of research with incarcerated people? Was it a, a slightly surreal parallel world for you? Uh, it was surreal in the sense that I had a really hard time um, creating boundaries, namely emotional boundaries um, with the people I was writing about, particularly people um, who were in prison. You know, this book took five years to report and write. And in that time, my life changed a bunch. I had two kids. I got married, the pandemic, the Trump administration, on and on. <laughs> you know, like there was, there was quite a lot going on. But at the same time, I was speaking to people every day who are living under you know, the worst, like, tragedy of, of this country. So, and I feel a big responsibility to them. I feel a big responsibility to get their story right, and not only to just be dipping in and out when it serves my narrative and my book's purpose, but, you know, people put a lot of trust in me, and I want to keep, be consistent in those relationships. So I think the juggling act was more in kind of the um, emotional bandwidth, I'd say. The book came out last summer, Love Lockdown, Dating, Sex and Marriage in America's Prisons. What's been the response of the people uh, you described in the book? Are they all happy with the book? Are they, uh, is this a book now being distributed inside jails? Uh, the people that I've spoken with are happy about it. You know, part of my professional practice, not everyone does this, but it's something that helps me sleep better at night, is that I show my manuscripts to people I've written about prior to them being published, you know, mm. with the caveat, of course, this is not for your approval. This is not for you to, um, you know, play editor here. But if there are things I've gotten factually incorrect, I want you to have the chance to to change that. You know, no matter how much fact checking you do, um, 
there's always a chance of something slipping through the cracks. And I would rather have that conversation sooner than later. So, you know, the people um, I wrote about, like the main profile um, subjects, all saw the book at, like a year before it came out. Um, and they were most of them were very pleased, which made me feel good, not because I want to make them happy, but just that they felt like they their story was fairly and accurately depicted, even though I, you know, am a pretty critical voice um, at times um, in my telling of it. So, uh, yeah, so that that was very satisfying. I know you're a big admirer of the filmmaker Taika uh, Waititi. Um, uh, he's uh, influenced your work. Is there a particular writer, a nonfiction uh, journalist, uh, who 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 inspired this work? Who you're trying to emulate with um, with Love Lockdown? Well, I worship at the altar of John Ronson. He is absolutely one of my favorites. I think that the kind he's of he's not subject- quirky, is he? <laughs> personally I mean I think he's brilliant and funny and I think that he um I I have a sim- sensibility similar to him and that I want to look at right kind of you're out not, there you're not judgme- you're, you, like him you don't seem to be judgmental and you enjoy sort of morally complex issues that might um outrage some people I, right. I, I'm thinking of Ronson stuff for example on pornography Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. His book, Them, is the book I wish I'd written. Do you think you've written it with Love Lockdown? <laughs> Not quite yet. Not quite yet. Miles you know, interesting, um, Liz, in my conversation with uh, Christine Montrose, who, who, as I said, I, I have a great deal of admi- um, admiration for, yes. and her book, Waiting for an Echo, which is a sort of an interesting complementary text, I think, to yours. They could be read side by side in a weird kind of way. She talked about the um, the incarceration system in Norway. Mm-hmm. And we always hear about Denmark as a model for civilization. We hear less about Norway, but I was intrigued by the idea, what she told me, at least in Norway, I don't know if it's true, that all Norwegians are required to do a little bit of public service inside jail so that they can experience it. You did it for the purpose of a book. But I think one way to begin to reform or rethink the American incarceration system and the obscene amount of people who are sent to jail mm-hmm. is by getting ordinary people like you and I to actually spend some time inside jails. Do you think that's true? I do think that's true. I think that's that's a great idea. I think that, you know, we're fed so many different kind of pithy sound bites about what prison is like, like club fed, you know, on the one hand, implying that federal prisons are all like really cushy kind of places when in fact, you know, a great deal of people who are drug traffickers and like all kinds of people end up in in federal prison, Um, you know, and uh, having done interviews in federal prisons, uh, they're not (laughs) cushy places. But I think that, you know, putting people through that experience of even going into a prison, the kind of um, scrutiny and surveillance you have to experience going through um, security, it it really gives you pause. I can imagine. I mean, you think of Shawshank Redemption, uh, Mm -hmm. which I don't know how realistic that is. Many of our viewers would have seen that. Is there a particular movie that you think could help ordinary people understand what being in jail is like? A particular movie. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, 
But I thought that, you know, it's not a movie, but I thought that Orange is the New Black, obviously that's not like a yeah. documentary film, but I think that, um, I think that from what I, my small sample set, I thought that that show did a good job reflecting a lot of the um, dynamics and relationships in prisons. Um, but no, I can't think of a, I can't think of a film off the Well, actually the Shawshank um, Redemption is interesting in the sense that it underlined the value of being able to write in yes. jail and the value of writing. And you stress that too. You have one or two characters in the book who trade on their writing. Um, mm -hmm. And for you as a writer, that obviously must have been particularly pertinent. Well, I mean, the most voracious um, readers and writers I know are people who are in prison. Um, and in many cases, they were people who did not have the opportunity to engage in those kinds of pursuits prior to going to prison, um, which just also, you know, this is all of a piece, right? It's all of a piece with our education system, our healthcare system, all of these things. Um, but yes, I met a great many talented readers and writers um, that I interviewed. And, you know, often what happens in prison is they will have these kinds of third party email messaging systems or phone calls, things like this, but they're often taken away sometimes as a punishment or because the prison goes on lockdown or someone ends up in solitary confinement. But letter writing is evergreen. There's always, um, almost always- Love at first letter. Paper. You wrote a piece and there's uh, some stuff on uh, uh, oh, gosh, the ability. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a pretty creepy story, but- um, love at first letter the idea of writing and trading on that and being able to have a voice which attracts because that's the only way they can reach the outside right prisoners in many cases yes well love lockdown is uh anything but quirky just as um, <laughs> thank you elizabeth greenwood is anything but quirky it's 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 a wonderful relatively new book it's out um it's already out uh, congratulations liz on the book thank you so um, much in addition to Love Lockdown, what else should, and, and Christine Montrose's book, which should be, I think, read side by side with yours, what else should people be reading? Perhaps Laura so, Kipnis, too, on love in the time of uh, in contagion. Absolutely. So I am such a fan of Carrie Howley. I worship everything she does. Um, this is her first book called Throne. She was a doctoral um, student in philosophy and phenomenology and was at a conference and at one point left the conference and found herself in um, an MMA fight and ended up dropping out of grad school and spending the next few years with MMA fighters. This book is so amazing. Um, and all of her work in New York Magazine is really great. She uh, had a you know personally. Yeah. No, I wish I did. I'm always um, looking for introductions for more people on the show, but I'll have I to. I wish uh, I did. I'll no, just a fan. Yes. Anything else, Liz? Any any other books worth reading? Other book. This is a great book. Um, I'm teaching a class at Columbia right now on creative license and nonfiction. This is a book called Lying, a Metaphorical Memoir by Lauren Slater. Um, the premise is that it's a memoir about having epilepsy as a young woman, um, but it is unclear whether or not that is in fact true or is she's using it as a very extended metaphor. Um, I've read this book at least six times. I always find something new and brilliant in it. Well, Elizabeth Greenwood, you have my permission to lie for our final question. Uh, you're the author of Love Lockdown. You know about a lot of things, including 
prisons, jails, and love. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, Liz, uh, who runs the world? Who's in charge these days? My three-year-old son, Theo, runs my world. And I, um, you know, having uh, now lived with a toddler for several years, I really think we should send them into complex negotiations because toddlers do not play by the rules of um, polite discourse. So I think that you send a bunch of toddlers into Congress, they could really whip them into shape because they are um, stubborn at best and abusive at worst. So Theo runs the world. And I assume you never threaten him with prison if he's naughty. We do when we're walking down Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn and we walk past the um, Brooklyn House of Detention, the jail here, I say, you want to be nice, boy, don't go there. 